Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Okay, well, welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Uphill Athlete podcast. Uh, I'm Sam Naney, a coach with Uphill Athlete, and I'm here with the co-founder and coach, Scott Johnston. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Hey, Sam, good. Good to be here. Thanks for uh, setting this up and, and prodding me into doing this. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking the reins here today. Uh, because I am going to be interviewing Scott, uh, and our, our topic for today is succinctly uh, failure in the mountains, but uh, a little bit more uh, specifically or broadly, what, what we want to talk about is the, the important lessons that can come from not maybe uh, nailing your initial planned objective in the mountains and how important that can be uh, essential, really, in the development of mountain athletes, climbers, runners, uh, and, and certainly more broadly, uh, whether we get into it or not, uh, just human beings and, and really embracing failure, learning through it. And, and certainly again, in, in the mountains, recognizing that, uh, that, that success and failure, it's, it's not a, it's not a binary, binary situation. There's a, there's a lot of nuance to getting these experiences and whether you reach the summit or not, uh, a lot can come of it. So, what uh, the way we're going to work it today is is dive into some of Scott's history as as a very accomplished alpinist and uh, and through that hear some hear some stories where maybe you've garnered lessons through through your career and and what you've learned for for yourself and then also in in coaching other folks. So maybe you uh, to start out what uh, if you've got let, let's get started with some stories if you got one on the top of your head. Yeah, I think it might pay to start in high school. Um, but before we do that, I have to say that I could write a book on screwing up. <laughs> and in fact, somebody has suggested that maybe my next book should be about you know, how I've Volume screwed up. three. Yeah. Um, because I got an in- in- incredible catalog, which I think in, in a way, as you know from coaching, you, you're a better coach when you make mistakes. And I think you're a better climber when you live through these mistakes too. And mine started early. <laughs> You know, well before my frontal cortex was fully developed <laughs> in high school with a buddy of mine, John. And uh, John was interested in, we were both in the Boy Scouts, but John was more interested in backpacking and hiking and that kind of thing. And he kind of roped me into doing, climbing these 14,000, Colorado's full of these 14,000 foot mountains. So, you know, like, oh, that'd be a great place to, for us to go do some of this stuff. We were young and fit. We were both on, both swimmers. And, um, and John convinced me to, to go do this. And our, our very first one of those trips, we had our, uh, we went to climb Long's Peak um, just by the standard, what's called the keyhole route. Um, and we had uh, these uh, Boy Scout frame pack, canvas frame packs. And we had a cast iron frying pan. <laughs> we had a dozen eggs. Um, 
And we began to hike. We drove up from Boulder probably like after school or something. And we began to, after we got off, like we were lifeguards, I think, that we drove up there uh, later in the day. We started hiking up the trail and we got to, um, you know, it started to get dark. And so we thought we should camp and we were going to use our Boy Scout camping skills. And we, of course, you know, started a fire, which, you know, we're in the Rocky Mountain National Park. It's totally illegal. <laughs> so started a fire and proceed to fry up some eggs for, you know, for dinner. And um, all went well that night. And then the next morning, <clears throat> we got up to go to the to climb to the top. It's still several hours away. And we didn't know anything about mountaineering, but we kind of had this, what we what our understanding of mountaineering was that you had to sleep on the summit for actually to count. So we carried these backpacks in our, uh, all the way to the top and we were sick as dogs. Neither one of us had ever been to 14,000 feet before. And, and we were, I'm sure looked really green. And of course around two o'clock in the afternoon was hanging around on the summit and some wise adult came over and saw these two, you know, nearly puking high school kids and said, you know, I don't think you want to stay up here too long. And there's these black clouds moving. A typical Colorado afternoon is about to start thundering and lightning. And we had, of course, you're setting up your tents. We had never considered that there might be, you know, a reason not to stay there. And he basically hustled us down out of there. And, you know, we went home, but we were like triumphant, like, wow, we did it. Now we are mountaineers. And, and so like a couple weeks later, John and I went to climb. We thought, okay, we've climbed Long's Peak. Now we need to climb the highest peak in Colorado. And so we, we drove to Leadville and we climbed Mount Elbert. And we did we set the tent up on the summit and uh, crawled inside. And both of us, again, pretty damn sick with altitude sickness. And we had brought with us, by that time, it must have been a few weeks later, we had borrowed a, a, a tent from, I think, one of the, one, somebody's parent. Um, and we had a little um, Primus pump stove, a little uh, kerosene-powered, a white gas-powered pump stove. And we again brought the frying pan, and, <clears throat> and we brought a big chunk of bacon. And so dinner, and, and, and we, could cook, we decided to cook in the tent because it was raging outside. And so we start the stove and we're lying head to toe kind of. So my, my head was down by John's feet near the door and or near, the, near the back of the tent. And John's head was near the door and he was cooking. And so we, we fry up this bacon and eat the, proceed to eat the bacon. And then what we brought for the second course was rice aroni. So, you know, you pour the, you're supposed to pour the rice aroni into the frying pan and, and um, put water in there and, and cook it up. So um, John proceeds pour this water into this hot bacon grease, which immediately vaporized into this cloud of bacon uh, grease and enveloping his head, which then caught on fire <laughs> because his, uh, the, 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 the primus stove was still running. And so it was just this, I saw this, this ball of flame with John's head in the middle of, cause he was, you know, literally a few inches from the stove. And he, luckily he had, he wore glasses, but he, he turned to look at me at the, after this is over, his eyebrows are completely gone and his hair was singed back about halfway on his head. And the whole end of the tent was just a bunch of, of like smoking tatters and we were going, oh God. and we hadn't even spent the night yet. And so then the, the, uh, the, the storm, of course, rolls in that night and it's raging and we're trying to hold the tent together and it's pouring rain. 
And the next morning, we, you know, we, all we did was take our sodden sleeping bags and tent, remnants of the tent, pack them into the packs and hightail it down to Leadville to the A&W for like a root beer float or something. <laughs> <laughs> but again, we, did we learn anything from that? I'm not convinced, but I think it was because we had that youthful enthusiasm that overpowers logic and rational thought. So we, we kind of continued along that same line for quite a while. Our, by that time, after a while, we began to consider that we were actually real climbers. And there's a, a popular bouldering area in Boulder um, on Flagstaff Mountain. And we would ride our bicycles up there and we'd see all these climbers bouldering around. We thought, that looks really cool. We should do that. And of course, they had rock shoes on, which we didn't have. And we were climbing in our high top uh, Chuck Taylors, because mm-hmm. they kind of looked like rock shoes. <laughs> and and um, we saw that they were using this gymnastics chalk. This was like in 1973 or four or something like that. And so we, um, we started to emulate them and try to do these boulder problems. And we were strong, so there's actually some of them we could do. We had no technique and you know, really didn't know what we were doing. But we decided that, then we, I think one of us bought a book about climbing. And I think the first book we bought was um, Warren Harding's Downward Bound, which is kind of a, it's a bad place. Don't buy your kid that to get them started climbing. <laughs> so Warren Harding was this wino that lived in Yosemite Valley that did some of the big wall climbings there in the 50s and 60s. And he had a very irreverent view of life and climbing and all that. But we thought it was hilarious and really funny, but didn't teach us much about climbing. But we thought we were kind of on that trajectory of, of being becoming climbers. And so we saved our lifeguard money and we went in halvesies on a rope. I, we, I was a mammut, in fact, I remember very distinctly. We bought it used from a, from a guy who lived in El Dorado. man. Yeah, El Dorado Springs Canyon. Oh, only been used once. <laughs> Never taken a fall. Um, and so we bought that. And then we went into one of the local mountaineering stores, and we each bought a 60-centimeter Chenard bamboo ice axe because we knew that climb mountaineers had ice axes. We had no idea what you did with these things or how you use them. And... Of course, our parents had no idea what we were up to, had no clue. And uh, John and I, our first rock climb was a multi-pitch rock climb. We climbed the second flat iron, which is not, a, you know, these days would be considered trivial. I think the crux is like 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. It's down pretty low. There's lots of third and fourth class climbing on it. Um, it's a fun, you know, fun romp. But for us, it was like really serious big deal to go up there. And... Well, we had no idea. We tied the rope around our waist and we dragged this rope and we climbed together, kind of simul climbing, but with the rope getting <laughs> stuck on things and, you know, and us, you know, like, wait a minute, I got to catch up, <laughs> that kind of thing. And we had our, we tied a string through the, the eye of the, the, the carabiner hole, the top of the ice axe and tied it to our belts. And so we would stick the, the uh, ice axe through our belts to hold while we were climbing with our hands. And if we needed to reach higher, we would pull the ice axe out and hook the hold and then kind of Batman up the handle of the ice axe to the, to the, to the top. And um, 
you know, the whole time completely oblivious to any sort of danger. Right. And the fact, you know, we we're not belaying anything, but we had this say, stupid you, rope. You, yeah, using any protection at all. No, no, we didn't have, we didn't own protection, <laughs> but we were so excited. We passed a few pitons and we were like, oh my God, we are real climbers now. We must be on a real climbing route. We didn't know, we had no guidebook. We do with these things. We, we had no guidebook. We didn't know what climb we were doing or anything like that. And then when we got to the top, you know, you have to rappel off the top of that thing. And we had no, you know, we didn't look around. We were looking down and around. It's like 200 feet to the ground. And, oh, my God, how do you get down from this? So we thought, oh, we just have to climb down. So we started climbing down. And it was kind of sketchy. You know, down climbing is always a little harder than going up. And we finally realized, you know, this is taking too long. We're probably getting late. We had to be home for dinner or something like that. And we traversed around this corner um, on this ledge where we were, because the, the, the flat irons are these, they are literally flat irons of sandstone that had been stood up against a mountain. And the mountain, so the, the slope of the dirt next to the flat irons, you know, sort of close to the same slope as the, um, the flat iron, a little less. And we got to this, we traversed around this ledge to where we were only about 15 feet above the ground and we jumped. <laughs> jumped down to the dirt. <laughs> like, you know, what did we know? We knew nothing. And, and um, it was great, great, by the grace of God, we managed to, <laughs> to live through that. And, and John and I went on to have numerous other kind of lucky breaks, I would say. You know, the, one of them, <clears throat> probably one of our, once we had done, a, by the time we'd done a few of these 14ers, and, you know, by that time, we maybe we, you know, people didn't climb with harnesses back then. You had a piece of swami belt, you, you know, like a piece of two-inch tubular webbing you tied around your waist, or you just tied the rope around your waist. And, but we were beginning to gain some confidence, and we would, enough so that we would go to this uh, pretty famous, now famous climbing store there called Neptune Mountaineering in Boulder. And Neptune, Neptune Mountaineering was a tiny little thing, like 500 square foot store but it was kind of where the real climbers hung out and so more than a store it was a gathering place mm -hmm. and there was this table in the corner where climbers would hang out and tell lies to each other and talk about future routes and things like that and we would go in there just like listening to get gleaning like getting the right jargon so we'd know what to say and and this guy gary neptune who owned it was just you know just very accommodating to these two idiots kids and and just like you know kind of started to mentor us a little bit and so at one point and, and i was able to climb some things and and so gary assumed that i knew how to climb and i knew all the like not just climb not the actual climbing skills but that i knew how to belay and place it gear and all that kind of stuff and so he said hey do you want to go to el dorado canyon this weekend with me and go climbing and I was like, I was so honored. I was like, oh my God, this guy is a God to me. And I'm going to get invited to go climb. And <clears throat> he wanted to do this route called the Grand Giraffe, which is like by a five nine or something. And um, I had never belayed or been belayed in my climbing career up to that point. And so he says, oh, you can have the first pitch. And he hands me this, you know, sling with a bunch of, you know, stoppers and things and, and uh, hexes. And, of course, this is way before cams. This is still around 1974 or 5. And um, so I just take off of the first pitch, which is about 5'7". And I climbed the whole 100-plus feet without placing any gear because I didn't know how to place any gear. I didn't really know what you did with it. And I get to the belay, and um, I... I by that time, I had kind of sussed out what belaying was like. We, then we just used, the, you know, it's a rope around your waist. We weren't using any belay devices. 
And so I just, I bring Gary up to where I is and he's like, whoa, God, you are really good. Thinking that, you know, the reason I didn't place any gear is that I'm so confident that 5.7 is nothing for me. So then we get to the crux pitch was 5.9. And he goes, yeah, you should go tackle this. <laughs> and, and I don't remember, I don't remember what happened, uh, but I managed to make it through it somehow. Um, but by that, but that was, it kind of ingratiated me with, with Gary. And then I had this bond He's like, when I got down, I told him, you know, I've never climbed anything before. And he was so <laughs> impressed that this stupid kid would come out and do this, this thing and, and managed to, you know, like fool him in a way, yeah. that, you know, that I knew yeah. what I was doing. Um, and he was very, very kind to me, I should say, um, so. Yeah. So, well, and, and that, that I was going to ask that before you started talking about Gary, but it sort of answered my question is, you know, so starting with John and, and just exploring completely ignorantly and naively into these, into these areas and just figuring things out or maybe not figuring them out, but that, that just pa- fundamental passion for wanting to get out seems like it carries you into the place where then you have some direction to want to get more out of it and finding a mentor yeah. Uh, who can who can give you some context seems like a really a, a, an important step in that direction a mentor i think a mentor in climbing is really key to speeding up the process mm-hmm. I mean, john and i probably would have killed ourselves eventually um if we hadn't gotten started to get a little bit of guidance from older wiser climbers um but i think that yeah having whether you whether a mentor is some a guide you hire or a buddy you go out with and and make mistakes with and learn from that's the slow way. Um, but you know, if you can, if you can hook up and go out with somebody who's a bit better than you are, a little bit wiser, then you're going to learn much faster than the way John and I mm-hmm. spent the first couple of years. Um, but I wonder and, is it, I, again, I think there, there's a tremendous amount of benefit in short, so long as you don't die or catastrophically injure yourself <clears throat> to just diving into it headlong in that sense, because you guys, you, it's like you had one idea of what success meant when you said, you know, like, okay, we've, we camp at the top of the mountain. That's how we know we've summited. Yeah. But other than that, it was every, every little experience that you had in those first couple of forays was this rich, exciting thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it seems like that's, that's such an important foundation to build where you're, you're finding enjoyment, you're finding uh, fulfillment in every aspect of the pursuit. Uh, as a, you know, and I think the one potential downside of doing it in, you know, from the very get go in a more structured way is it does tend to more clearly delineate success in this, in, in this is reaching the top of the climb. Right. And you just, you focus on the top of the climb. Whereas for you guys, success was this, you know, it was just the experience. It was nebulous. Yeah. It was quite <laughs> nebulous for yeah. sure. And, you know, I think one of the motivations, you know, in, in the seventies, Climbing was for kind of the outcast class. I mean, it was not mainstream like it is today. <clears throat> and it was for, for rebels, you know, the nonconformists. And I was, you know, in that era of, you know, let's say, you know, 16 to 20 something. I was so drawn to this idea of nonconformity and being a rebel. You know, that's when, you know, most kids kind of go through that phase, you know, and pushing back against my parents and I mean, like, for years, our parents never knew we did this stuff. <laughs> they just had no idea. <laughs> You're um, a study. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that that was a big motivator for me at that time. You know, I, these these kind of 
weird outcasts that were the, at the hub of boulder climbing, which at that time was a hotbed of rock climbing, were like my, my role, role models. I mean, I would, you know, would, like I said, I would go into Neptune Mountaineering and sit in the corner and listen to these guys talk. And it was just, I couldn't, I, it was like a sponge. I wanted to absorb all this stuff. And then I was just really drawn to that sort of rebellious nature of it. Um, and it, it, so John and I continued along those lines <clears throat> when we, we were in college. We, uh, we both went to the Air Force Academy, but had a truncated period of time. <laughs> we both left the Air Force Academy. <laughs> so um, that it wasn't for you. <laughs> me under a little bit darker cloud than John did. Um, yeah, I had a lot of demerits and they kind of asked me to leave. But um, John left a year after me. But we both ended up going to the University of Colorado in our hometown of Boulder on swimming scholarships. <clears throat> and we while we were there, we were still going through this learning, all these learning experiences with climbing. We were not giving up climbing for, because of college or, or, or girls or swimming. That wasn't going to happen. Conventional things. Climbing was kind of what we wanted to do. And one of the, another learning experience and kind of a, uh, a little bit of a silly story is that one year uh, around Christmas time, there was this major international swimming meet in Mexico City was actually just outside of Mexico City because the, the Olympic, this was in 1973, um, maybe? The Mexico Olympics were 72. So it was a few years after the Mexico Olympics. Then mm. we had, they, the meet was being held at the, the Olympic pool, which is just outside of Mexico City. And they've now built this big Olympic training center there for all these Mexican athletes. So we went on this, we're on this team. So this team went, went down there for this big meet. And John had this, I didn't know anything about these volcanoes that are right outside of Mexico City. And John said, you know, we should climb this one called Popocatapetl, which is, you know, not, it's like 17,000 some feet tall. And it's not that far from Mexico City. And so we smuggled into our travel duffel bags. Of course, the swimmers don't travel with much, a towel and a suit, swimming suit and a toothbrush. So we had room for a pair of boots and um our ice axes. I don't, and I think we even took a rope. I can't remember. And some back and a little like backpacks, you know, foldable, small backpacks. And, um, so when we got there, we, we were training for like, we were there for several, two weeks or three weeks, I think before the meet. And there was these daily training regimen. We were, you know, had to be at these workouts twice a day. And then one day they decided they're going to give us this day off, um, to rest and well to rest. <laughs> and for everyone, to go into this town, I think it's called Cuernavaca. It's a big market town and, you know, and buy some trinkets and souvenirs to take home. So John and I, the, the night before, we, as soon as dinner was over in the, in the cafeteria, we called a taxi cab and got this taxi cab to drive us to the hut on Popocatapetl that night. Um, and it, which is at about 13,000 feet on this bad road. And we just started hiking at, you know, nine o'clock at night um, to go up this thing. And we hiked till we got really tired. And we, I remember chopping. It was all this, you know, volcanic ash that's sort of frozen in place. And we chopped out a couple of little butt seats to sit down. And we just hunkered down there till the sun came up. And then as soon as we started to have enough light to see, we 
proceeded to climb to the top and then we came back down and we told the taxi driver he had to be back there by four o'clock so we could be back in time for dinner. And of course it had never dawned on us that anybody might miss us. <laughs> like maybe where are those two guys? And so, cause everybody's gone off on this great trip and, and to, to Cuernavaca. And so John and I came back and, you know, we're of course kind of sunburned and, and uh, exhausted and exhausted. <laughs> and all oh, the coaches were so pissed. <laughs> and it was, we, uh, why they even let us swim. We did swim in the meet and we actually did okay. But um, yeah, and we, that's where, that's that adolescent brain. It just like, we did not consider that there would be any ramifications or consequences of this right. utterly right. ridiculous thing to do. I mean, if I were, when I was a coach of the skiers, the junior skiers, if somebody, had, if somebody had done that, they would have been on the next bus home. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, so I fully appreciate that, you know, what we did was really not cool in terms of, you know, the way an adult would think about it. We thought it was just the coolest adventure, you know, to do this. Um, but it was an affirmation, too that you had this capacity to, you know, yeah. to, to just be, have, have the, have the spontaneous ability to get out there and do it. And then this capacity to accomplish that, to just be exploring on that mountain yeah. come back, do your meet, like, well, we, we escaped that one. <laughs> <laughs> Dodge that bullet. <laughs> um, and we got, we were so enamored of that. That was Christmas time, roughly. It was over the, the semester break at school, just Christmas break. So we were so excited by this quote unquote success that there's a bigger volcano down there called Orizaba. And um, so we set our sights on during spring break, which is after ski, after swimming season. And we wouldn't have to deal with coaches. We wouldn't have to make, wouldn't have to lie and make excuses or get in trouble. So we were going to drive down from Boulder in my 1963 Saab, which was a two stroke. We had to mix the oil and the gas together. And cause that was the only car we had between the two of us, little um, 850 CC engine. And, um, and so we piled all of our climbing gear and sleeping bags and everything. And, and we proceeded to drive. And this was during the, uh, what the, the gas crisis, gas crisis. So this must've been like, you know, 74, 75 was when that, when, when it was, they had waiting lines at gas stations, you couldn't get enough gas. And so we thought we'd be very clever. And we bought this, this, this little Saab station wagon had one of those rear facing seats that you could fold up. And so when you folded the seat up, there was this footwell where your little kid's feet could sit. So we found a, a gas, a, like a special gas can that just perfectly fit. It was a 15 gallon gas can that we perfectly fit down into this, this footwell. And we thought, okay, great, we can fill this up. And then if there's, if we don't find gas as we're driving down there, we'll have our own gas. We hadn't figured out how we would get the gas out of that can into, into the, car. the car's gas tank. <laughs> but, and so we're, we're driving along, um, and, and it was, I think we got somewhere into Texas and it was just this monsoonal rainstorm. And John said, I, I smell gas. <laughs> and I said, huh, okay, maybe we better pull up in the middle of the night. Anyway, we were on the interstate in this pouring rainstorm and, you know, semis raging by us and throwing up all this spray. And we got out and we realized the gas can that we had bought at the army surplus store was leaking into the footwell because we had filled it up sometime in, in Texas. And, um, and we, there's like two inches of gas sloshing around <laughs> in the, in the footwell. And so what we did was we, we wrestled that gas can out of the footwell and then we took our ice axes and we chopped two little, like the, with the pick of the ice axe, 
poked holes to drain the gas out. And so we hop back in the car and keep driving. And we get down to, you know, Mexico City and, and further. It's, it's a little, Orizaba is a ways south of Mexico City. I don't remember how far. And there's this town, called, I think it's called Puebla, that's kind of at the base of the mountain. And we got there and there was an opportunity to hire a Jeep to take us up to, there's a hut at around 14,000 feet. I think Orizaba is 18 something. And there's this hut at 14 that you could hire this Jeep. But we're thinking, well, that's going to cost money. And so we'll just take the Saab up there. And, so, and it turns out to be a, a Jeep road in this tiny little car grinding up the hill. And, and part way, the engine overheats and seizes. <laughs> and so here we are, you know, 2,000 miles from home <laughs> or something, and uh, with no car, but a mountain right in front of us. So what did we do? We just got out of the car, we put on our backpacks, and we headed up to the Pushed hut. Pushed the car to the side of the road. We just, yeah, we just left it there and um, hiked up the road till we got to the, to the hut that spent the night there. And um, next, the next day, climbed Orizaba and came back down. And we thought, okay, now we have to deal with this thing that we, you know, we have to be back in school in a few days. And we are a long way from home. And the parents don't know where we are. They, they had no clue where we went on this trip. So we, um, we started by, uh, we, we just took, we took all the most valuable things we could out of the, the, like our sleeping, down sleeping bags, things like that. And we just left the car with the intention thinking, oh, you know, we'll just come back down here with a U-Haul and pick it up later. Of course, we never considering that maybe U-Haul would frown on us driving across the border with one of their trucks. Pick up the car in Mexico. Yeah, and how we would afford the cost of the U-Haul, I and mean, how we could rent a U-Haul at, you know, 20 years old. And so we, we began by hitchhiking, and we had all these crazy rides, you know, riding on top of this huge truck full of rice. And, um, and finally, we, we got, made it to Brownsville, Texas, to the, uh, the border, and by that time, we were, it was like three or four days later taking us that long. We were just, you know, of course, hadn't bathed since we started this trip where we're filthy and we're exhausted and we're standing out by the interstate, you know, trying to hitchhike. And I'm sure we looked like so derelict that nobody was ever going to pick us up. And we were beginning to think, oh God, how's this going to end? You know, and I mean, at that point we were like, Oh, if, if God, if you take, if you let us get home, we'll do anything. Exactly. One of those kind of be things. good for yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anything to get us out of this situation. And and this big Cadillac, brand new Cadillac Eldorado drives up, and it's got this huge black man in it. Turns out he's a Seventh Day Adventist minister. <clears throat> And he says, hop in here, boys. And so we pile in. I got sat in the front. John went and sat in the back. Immediately, John fell asleep. And this guy and I just had this you know, ongoing conversation um, for hours and hours and hours. He was trying to you know, convert us into Seventh-day Adventism. Very, very nice guy. He bought us hamburgers at one point because you could tell we didn't have any money. And, um, and he took us quite a ways. I think he took us to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so we're standing out on the interstate um, at like three in the morning, trying to hitchhike. Um, and this car just zooms by us at you know, 90 miles an hour with the headlights off. And suddenly we see the taillights go on. The guy screeches to a stop, puts it in reverse and zooms back to us. And he goes, you guys need a ride? Goes, Hell yeah, we'd do anything for a ride. We get in the car and the guy's smoking a joint. And he's got a bottle, open bottle of whiskey or some kind of alcohol in his, in between his legs. And, um, and 
And I'm already a little bit nervous about this situation. And so I said, how come you're driving with your lights on? Well, I don't want the cops to catch me because I got a, a, a trunk load of dope. And I thought, oh, great. This is all we need. This is all we need now. And so uh, John and I were like the first time he stopped, we, I think we stopped for gas or something. And we, we got out and just ran, ran away and, and um, hid someplace so that he couldn't find us. And, and uh, um, I guess that was, that was where we ended up in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And so when we got there, <clears throat> by that time we were desperate. You know, we were like, oh, my God, this is really going from being kind of a fun adventure to being really miserable. And we, we pooled our money. We had $17. And that bought us Trailways bus tickets from Truth, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, to um, Fort Garland. Colorado, which is a tiny little crossroads with nothing but a gas station that acts as a truck station, truck stop. I mean, I mean a bus station. And so we took our $17 that got us into Colorado. And then we're hanging out there in that gas station, um, you know, being miserable and thinking, how are we going to get from here to home? And up drives this two beautiful college student girls in a pretty new BMW. And we were thinking, well, believe it or fortunes not, fortunes have changed. Fortunes had changed, <laughs> and amazingly enough, they allowed us into their car <laughs> despite all the you know weeks worth of a week worth of road crime on us. And they were headed back to to Boulder from spring break, mm. and so they took us right to the front door, right to our parents' front door. And and of course, we we got there and we we're just like we were kissing the ground, <laughs> thinking, "Oh my God, we lived through and that thing." And um, but these kind of you know that's. You know, if, you're, if anybody's kid did that today, they would be you know, disowned, I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, those are the kind of um, experiences that I had in my early days as a climber that, you know, they, obviously the enthusiasm was there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but it yeah. was just a little bit ahead of the, the knowledge base. And there, there wasn't as much, you know, organized, there wasn't a, there was no, there were very few books. There were, there was no internet. You couldn't learn these things except by watching other people do them. Mm-hmm. And so we took what, you know, little knowledge we had and tried to, and leveraged it into doing these things, which like I said before, we managed to live through, but they didn't, uh, you know, it, it's not what I would recommend. <laughs> no, but I think, I think there's a, there's a, an element throughout those that is really valuable and, um, you know, taking it, to present day, when we think about working with athletes, you know, especially people who are just getting into mountain sports, um, I, I really encourage them to go at whatever, whatever level or capacity they're at, encouraging them to go and explore at that, you know, at the sort of the edge of that capacity, you know, so an example would be, you know, the person who has spent very little time out in the woods, like, you know, go, you know, go hike in the presidential range, you know, go Mm -hmm. spend, go spend a full day and, not thinking about, uh, you know, you need to climb this mountain, you need to accomplish this route, just just go and be in that place, you yeah. know, and experience all the things that you don't even know you don't know, you know, mm-hmm. so the, you know, not realizing that, you know, the weather is going to change to a certain degree, or that the jacket that you thought was going to work actually is going to be insufficient because it's raining, or mm-hmm. it's going to get cold. And, and I think, you know, what I what I hear in your stories, and I, is, I think is so valuable is that you really just have to to get into you know throw yourself into it 
to a certain degree, obviously not to the point of, of dying. And, you know, more and more nowadays, there is more information out there that can help prevent yeah. <laughs> young people, hopefully from going out and, and risking death. But it, uh, there, there's no substitute for going out and just finding an experience and, and yeah. gaining and gaining that knowledge through doing there, you know, you can, um, you can only get so much from reading. You can only get so much from, uh, from listening to somebody. You have to feel it on the ground. I, I totally agree with you on that, Sam. I think, you know, experience is what is the key. And especially in these mountain type sports, because the mountains, the terrain varies, the weather varies, you know, there's just so many variables that are beyond our control that, you know, First of all, understanding you can't control those things, I think, is a really important first step. And being somewhat comfortable with the chaos that comes with that acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then through the process of experience, developing a set of tools that allows you to deal with the various you know, changes that might occur during the day or during the climb, whatever it is. So that you know, when you're a beginner, you don't have very many of those tools. Yeah. By the time you've been doing this for a number of years, you've developed a really good toolbox and you can pull out like, okay, we're going to have to bivy here tonight because we're not making, we're not going to make the top. So, you know, if you don't know what you're doing, that bivouac could be scary, you know, dangerous, <clears throat> But if you've bivouacked, you know, 30 nights in, you know, already, you know, you go, okay, no big deal. Here's right. what we do. Here's how it goes. And we're not going to sleep much. We're just going to hunker down on this ledge and keep each other company. Um, but I think having that, those, those the skill sets that you can only, you can't learn that in a book. And uh, you can only learn it through this sort of trial and error. And, and um, I think that that was, you know, for me, that led to, you know, I made a kind of a quantum leap in my climbing after these, after college, um, because then I, 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 mean, I realized what an ass I had been and, you know, what a total Gumby, I mean, I was in terms of not knowing what I was doing and I was rather embarrassed, but, but I, I got some enough recognition. I could begin to climb with some of these better climbers around Boulder and go do these, go do real climbs. And, and one of my, um, climbing partners who was definitely better than me, um, was this guy named Charlie Fowler and, um, Charlie had, uh, his father had recently died and he had inherited a little bit of money and he had moved from Virginia where he climbed up at Seneca rocks, which is the good local climbing area there. He'd moved to Boulder because that was the hotbed of rock climbing. And he was an extremely talented rock climber. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of those uh, what he did, but I met Charlie when um, I was studying in the library at the University of Colorado, and um, I was studying with this guy named Pete Athens. Pete's become rather was then probably kind of faded from many people's memory, but Pete climbed Everest thirteen times um, as a guide and uh, became quite an icon. He's still on the North Face um, team, I believe, and. Uh, and he was a roommate in my house. And so we were at the library this night studying. And Charlie and this other guy that I knew walked over to our table. Charlie was not a student. Charlie walked over to the table and, and kind of we asked him, what are you doing? And I think Pete and I had recently done a rather difficult climb in El Dorado Canyon. And um, this, this friend of ours, the person we knew that we didn't know, Charlie, the, other, the person we knew <clears throat> said, oh, yeah, we were out in El Dorado today. And Charlie soloed this one climb, it's, you know, it was a hard five, you know, 
real honest to goodness, old school, 1970s, 5'11", and then down climb this climb right next to it. And these were like, you know, five pitch climbs. Down climb this pit climb next to it, which is 5'10", the easy way down. And so I was like, whoa, (laughs) who is this guy? And so Charlie and I kind of had some kindred spirit about some of this stuff, and we began to climb together a little bit, and especially doing stuff in the wintertime. And uh, because... You know, finding partners that want to go out and suffer in really cold weather, you know, in the dark and, you know, all that kind of stuff is hard. And so there was a very small cadre of people in Boulder um, that I was a part of that like to go out in the wintertime and do rock climbs or climb on mixed ice and rock. Nowadays, it's pretty much a popular sport, but then it was sort of brand new and, and the tools were so crude. We had, you know, didn't have all these, we had these mountaineering axes that we were climbing with. <clears throat> but Charlie taught me a lot about, I think the, one of the most important lessons was failure. And Char, by the way, Charlie's also this guy who said to me after we climbed together for a while, and I think I've mentioned this somewhere else, that you are the strongest, worst climber I know. <laughs> and so that's like put me in my place a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, but Charlie taught me about failure and to how to embrace it. And I think, you know, kind of segueing from my early idiocy into a more mature climbing state where I was actually knew what I was doing and knew how to get out of these situations. You know, if I got myself into a situation, it was kind of because I did it on, on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and Charlie, who was famous for, you know, doing so many really hard climbs, many of them without a rope. Um, and, he, but he was also completely transparent and open about failure, failures. And he would brag about when he'd come back, because people kind of wanted to, the, the climbing community was quite small. So when someone would go out to climb, you know, and it, it wouldn't take long in the grapevine to find, you know, oh, so-and-so did just went and did such and such. Mm-hmm. And, but Charlie would come back and, and often fail. And he began to brag about that, like, oh, my God, I got my ass handed to me on this thing. And, and it really was powerful for me because being you know, in, young, insecure, like wanting to prove myself, I didn't want to fail. You know, mm-hmm. I, that was an embarrassment. Was like, like, failure was like the, the last A step backward. Yeah. yeah. And, and Charlie taught me to, yeah, you, you, you want to fail. You need to fail. And the way you destigmatize that failure is to embrace it and brag about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was really good at bragging about his failures. And I remember him one time when one of those winters we were climbing and we'd go up to Rocky mountain national park to climb these ice climbs and uh, mixed climbs. And, and we, we calculated that like, that winter, our success rate was about 10%. <laughs> you know, we got skunked on most of the things we did. Some of them, we could barely even get to the base of the climb. You know, some, something would happen, you know, binding ski binding breaks or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and, and so, but that really helped me, um, that, that destigmatization so that I no longer felt like I was a failure failure just because I had failed on that climb. That, yeah, it, I, it, it, it resonates so much for me and in, in, in thinking about pursuing, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're taking, making this effort to pursue an, an activity, a sport, you know, competitions in any, in any degree beyond the near term, you're, 
if you, if you choose to quantify it as success or failure, you're going to fail a lot more than you succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you think yeah. about in a, in a competition sense, if you're in a conventional sport where it, it involves races or competitions, you're going to have a lot more events where you don't reach your goal than you do. Um, Allison actually just read a book by uh, the author, Matt Fitzgerald, who's mm-hmm. written a lot about running and um, marathon running and such. And, and she told me a, a, a quote from it that I uh, thought was, was, really interesting for, for both of us. She said that he, he suggested that a goal should be something that is aspirational enough that, you know, it's like the likelihood of you hitting, it's about a 10% possibility. Like it, it's, it's a reach, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you know, goals aren't meant to be the thing that if you just stay on your path, you're going to hit it. Yeah. You know? And so, and so when you mentioned that, that idea that when you went out, it may be 10% of the time you actually achieved your objective. I think that, 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 that corollary there and how you then can sort of, um, contextualize the, the pursuit. It really is more about the pursuit, you know, and, and acknowledging like, yeah, if everything lines up just perfectly and particularly in the mountains, you've got weather and all the objective hazards and how you are on that day. And, you know, whether you remembered or forgot the gear that you needed, yeah. like everything, the stars have to align yeah. for that, for that, you know, quote success to occur. Um, but, but then by that same token, if you can go out there, maybe not reach the summit or not complete the climb, but you come back with this, with this widened toolbox, you know, like, Oh, we, we figured out how to repair a crampon yeah. that blew, you know, halfway through because we had these, you know, these repair parts in our kit. Like that's, that's going to come in handy yeah. the next time. That's, yeah. that's as good as success. Maybe the next time around when that happens and you can keep going. Well, and I think, you know, this is something we counsel a lot of the athletes we coach on is that, you know, especially training for endurance and training for and training for climbing, maybe even more so because it's such a high skill sport with multifaceted, lots of different kinds of skills you need, you know, especially for something like alpinism, you have all these different skills you need to acquire. It takes a lot of time. And, and, and training is similar in that we know it's going to take months and months and years and years to really develop somebody to their potential fitness level. And they need to embrace the process and, you know, if the only thing that matters is ticking that box of climbing to the summit of such and such, it's going to be very hard to stay the course because much of what you're going to be doing in the meantime is mon- monotonous, not very sexy, um, you know, and you won't be able to hang your hat on success because you haven't, all you've done is gone out and go for an hour and a half run or you know, done some kind of a workout. And so I think that that was something for me, you know, having been a competitive swimmer, um, you know, for most of my young life, I was pretty used to the, the hard work ethic, but I also, this helped me just realize how much, like I loved training. You know, at that time I didn't know that I loved training. But it made me realize the process of training for swimming or the process of learning these things for climbing was every bit as rewarding for me mm-hmm. as getting to the summit. And so I think that's a valuable lesson if people want to have a long time relationship with these kind of mountain sports is that, you know, you need to be your very little chance you are going to be doing something that's really notable, you know, at a world level or standing on the top of some podium, you know, there's a pretty slim chance that that will happen. Mm-hmm. If it does, that's wonderful gravy, but that should not be the reason you are in this. And it'll still be fleeting. I think yeah. even, you know, I, I, even if you do reach that, uh, widely understood and recognized level of success, whether it's, you know, a podium or, you know, climbing a particularly difficult route successfully, uh, that 
that memory may be strong. It's fleeting, you know, and, and, but the, all the steps that you take to get there before, after, uh, that's the stuff that not only enriches your abilities and allows you to do more of it, um, but just by a sheer amount of time, that's the stuff that you recall that you hang yeah. on to. I mean, all, I mean, I've got lots of other stories I can tell sometime and I know we're running out of time here. So I want to be uh, aware of that, but I got lots of other stories, some of them good success stories, but these stories I just related, those, those, these are stories from, you know, 50 years ago. And they're as fresh in my mind and as poignant and meaningful as any successful climb I ever did. In fact, maybe more. So, I mean, I, I don't remember the details of some of the more successful climbs I did. And whereas these, like, I remember very, I remember what it smelled like in that guy's car who was had the whiskey bottle, you know, and <laughs> smoking the joint. I mean, I remember all of those details because that was such a rich experience. Yeah. And I think, I just think that that's what can sometimes cloud you know, we deal with a lot of people that are relatively new to this sport, you know, and with, with the internet and social media, it's so easy for people to see these wildly successful, you know, elite level runners, climbers, skiers, whatever you want to say, performing and then trying to judge themselves against that metric, mm -hmm. which is a really harmful thing to do. Um, I mean, those people have likely, may very, may very well be, you know, genetically gifted mm. and they have no doubt spent years and years honing those skills. And so for you as a beginner coming into this sport or even, you know, not have to be a beginner, but you know, even somebody at a more modest level who has family and a job and didn't start climbing when they were, you know, eight years old um, to compare yourself to that is doing yourself a huge disservice. As well. well, and it's a snapshot, you know, yeah. when you, when you observe, you know, see somebody having success at something, you see them, on a podium or you hear that they did this successful climb mm -hmm. or they skied a really difficult line. That's one moment. Yeah. It's one moment in a, in perhaps a lifetime of challenges mm -hmm. and, and walking, you know, backing off of a climb or, you know, booting back out of a couloir because they got stumped partway down. And, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, and it, and you're right. I think it, it's a, it's a great disservice to you as the athlete to, to try to draw a comparison um, but I think it also, uh, it, it doesn't do justice to what you could have as an experience. And I, I, I think about that, um, again, particularly with, um, athletes that we work with who, you know, maybe come in with one specific goal and, and oftentimes it's, it's a climb, you know, yeah. a, a climbing a mountain and, and that is the goal, you know, they decided that is, that is what they're going to do in this part of their life. And, and so everything needs to lead to that, um, and maybe it's the only one that they're going to do, or it's, it's the most significant one. And, uh, and I, I really try to impart to them this idea, like, look, I appreciate that, that this climb is, is important to you. And, and by all means, we're going to do everything we can to, to have you have a good experience there. But, but the whole point of these sports and these, and being in the mountains is, is just, is being in the mountains, you know, yeah. and, yeah. and it really, as you said, and, and I feel the same way, it's so many experiences that really have nothing to do with whether I accomplish the objective or not. And, yeah. and again, usually you don't, but it just the, the partnerships and then the yeah. skills that you, that you come away with are so much more valuable. And, and uh, I think it's, you know, if you are you know, new to these sports or, or, or you've been doing them for a while, the more you can pile into you know, your life as experiences, mm -hmm. uh, the, the more satisfied it will be um, because 
you know, if you, if you hang your hopes on that, on that one single success or fail point, then, then you're really you're putting, putting a precarious, uh, putting yourself in a pr- precarious position of, of perhaps judging too harshly all of the things that lead up to that yeah. when they could in fact be incredibly fulfilling for you. Totally agree, Sam. Yeah. I think that's a great way to, to wrap it up today. Um, maybe we'll do this again another time and I can do chapter two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The mini, the mini volume. No, this yeah. was great, Scott. I, yeah. I really appreciate you sharing some of that. See, some of these I, I had not heard before. So this, <laughs> it was pretty fun to, to hear tales, but, uh, well, thanks. Hope everybody got a little bit out of this and, and some takeaways and, uh, until next time, have a, have a, great, a great day. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks, Sam. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.